0: Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Susan Penegrass is joined by Bill Maddox. Bill is the director of the J. Stanley Marshall Center for Educational Options at the James Madison Institute. For more Show Me Institute podcast, visit showmeinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Susan Pentagrass.
1: Bill Maddox, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you how many times I talk about Florida in my work in Missouri. A lot of times. And To be honest, people in Missouri don't really want to hear about Florida because it's far away and it's not rural. And they think it's palm trees in Miami and Disney World and so removed from the the experience in Missouri. But Florida is actually quite rural, right?
0: It is. We have a number of uh, major cities, um, but we have a lot of space uh, between the coasts that is largely agricultural And much of North Florida is uh, very rural. I mean, this was a surprise to me. I've lived in Florida now for 12, 13 years, moving here from the Washington D.C. area. And when I would travel around, you know, areas in the Mid-Atlantic or other parts of the South, even further north of uh, Florida, when you're driving along the interstate, you'll hit a town every five, 10 miles or so. And I came to Florida, landed in Tallahassee, and lo and behold. You can drive for quite a distance from here and not really hit anything until you more or less get to Jacksonville going to the east or more or less get to Pensacola going west. So there's a lot of rural area uh, in Florida. And I think that does surprise people. It really it yeah. really does.
1: And that's, I want to talk to you this morning about rural school choice specifically, as I mentioned, but um, but school choice as well in general. But the rural thing is is really the issue in a state like ours. Uh, the Our state legislature right now is considering uh, an education scholarship account or ESA bill, but the rural uh, legislators are really pushing back as we like, we don't want it or need it and our folks don't want it or need it. So I want to get into that. But before that, I would like to just, if you could give me a little history lesson on school choice in Florida, because what I recall is that y'all started- um, assigning letter grades to schools in the mid-90s, late 90s?
0: Right. In the late 90s, there were some innovations, like we created our Florida virtual school, which now serves over 200,000 students, uh, most of whom take courses uh, just one off. They, there are only a handful, maybe 10,000 or so, that are full-time. Uh, and then we also began in with, uh, Jeb Bush was elected in the 98 election, and so part of his agenda was to uh, bring about school choice. So we had already begun charters and that greatly expanded. And then we also adopted several scholarship programs and then did uh, some accountability measures where we started grading schools. And so those innovations have now been in place really 20 to 25 years, something like that. Um, And over the course of time, we have steadily uh, built on the foundation that was laid then. Right and have expanded programs and introduced different innovations that will be targeted to specific populations and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, I think there were some hiccups in the beginning, if I remember. And so this, the school grades is very controversial in Missouri. It's not it's not really controversial. No one wants to do it. I would like to do it. But there's a handful of people that are behind this idea. Um, and y'all have been doing it for 20, 25 years. And it's seemingly you know, there's not shame and dismay for the parents and the kids at the D's and F's. That's what everyone says. Everyone's going to feel bad and it's not going to give you any information because it's just going to be the poor schools or the D's and F's, but you guys have really been a leader in, in that accountability system. And what I remember is the first school choice program outside charter schools was the McKay scholarship. Is that right? And that is for, uh, a Who's that for specifically? It,
0: it's for a special needs population, and it's a voucher program. We also have another special needs program that's been in place for about eight years now. That is a um, education savings account. Um, so, okay. so basically, special needs parents have either option, and um, that has been
1: twenty think, years on McKay. 25? Twenty
0: five. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And and one of the things I should say there that has been really encouraging that I think your um, state. Uh, legislators and state leaders will take uh, encouragement from is that our special needs students now outperform special needs students in every other state. And it's not just those that are taking advantage of McKay scholarship or the Gardner scholarship, which is our ESA. It's the students that are continuing to get a special needs education in their local public school, which the vast majority of them continue to do. So what has happened is just as many predicted that Introducing competition into the marketplace has um, helped all different modes, and we are seeing better performance across the board. And so our public schools have been made better, and uh, uh, the parents are all much happier because they now can get the kind of education that they want for their child.
1: Yeah, I recall reading a story uh, about a family, a rural family, in fact, that has two children with special needs, I believe one is hearing impaired and one has cerebral palsy and they sort of patched together different programs to get, you know, you could use the ESA and, and um, get equipment and you could use the voucher and attend a, a program for hearing impaired children. And if I recall correctly, this family was able to put a package together for each of their children's unique needs through using these school choice programs. And how was that not a win? Exactly.
0: I mean, this is part of what is so great about ESAs is that they give flexibility to parents. You can much more easily customize uh, education to the unique needs and interests and and um, uh, uh, aptitudes of, the, of yeah. the students involved. And that is particularly apparent when you have a special needs population where every situation is so unique and where the parents are often better able to discern what exactly this child needs than anyone else because um, each case is so different. But the general principle still applies and um, for the general population we think ESAs make an awful lot of sense for all the same reasons and um, our parents who you know have had an opportunity to benefit from something like this um, swear by them And, and that's given us encouragement then to expand ESAs beyond just the special needs population.
1: I mean, especially this past year, which was just a disaster. That was what I was hearing because I've, you know, every parent I ran into, I asked them how their school year is going. It was the parents of the students with disabilities that were really, really um, upset. One parent said, Don't ask me, I'm going to cry because their student was not, their child was not receiving the services that they were guaranteed through their IEP. And that had to be so hard. So, um, okay. So, The McKay Scholarship Program, I think, was first. And then was it the Opportunity Scholarship?
0: So we then have, um, we had a voucher that was originally adopted that got struck down by the courts.
1: We'll talk about that a little bit, because to me, I use that as an example of uh, the power structure gone wrong.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it was a case where the establishment fought back and, and prevailed initially, Uh, But when, uh, around that same time, we adopted a tax credit scholarship, which has never been successfully challenged in court, and in fact has won every challenge that's been levied against it. And that has now grown to where it now serves over 100,000 students, primarily low-income students, um, but is moving now uh, up the income scale into the middle-income strata. And uh, two years ago, um, after DeSantis won and the court became friendlier, um, uh, he then led an initiative to adopt a, a similar program to the original voucher program.
1: Which, how did that work, right? It was kids in low-performing schools.
0: Uh, no, it, it's basically the criteria is the same as the tax credit scholarship. And, okay. and, and, and the way that this was adopted or the part of the messaging was We have a number of students, even though we're now serving over hundred thousand, there are a number of students who are on waiting lists. We want to accommodate them. We've kind of tapped out all of the tax credit monies that we can realistically expect to get. Let's now use um, general revenues to fund these new uh, scholarships because the demand is there and we want to serve this needy population. So yeah, some of the students were coming from uh schools that were you know well yeah wasn't the original
1: program that you couldn't you wouldn't have to stay in a d school for more than three years or an f school for more than one or something to that effect
0: yeah there those sorts of uh provisions have been in place and we have a charter program also that is designed specifically for students that are in low performing uh areas how does that work uh, it it's basically uh, allows a, um, um, charters that have proven to be effective in dealing with um, um, disadvantaged populations in other states are in effect fast-tracked. The uh, regulatory approval process is streamlined so that they can establish a presence in areas that have uh, failing public schools, so that those residents have opportun- have have an opportunity to get into a better environment Fantastic. more quickly.
1: Yeah, wow, that's a great idea. Um, okay, and then after that, oh, oh, well, the thing that bothers me about that initial program with kids in failing schools or a couple of things. Number one, you guys had the courage to grade schools, right? Um, and when you know you're in a D school or an F school, that you shouldn't keep children there. And when the teachers' unions really are the ones who Sued, sued it in court right who fought it in court
0: yeah they've been the consistent critics of this and so throughout. when
1: when they won quote unquote that meant the kids were forced to go back to dnf schools
0: or to take advantage of the tax credit scholarship yeah or and the ta- that, came into and, that and has you know served uh, uh that population very well over the years
1: yeah so then the more recent programs would be the hope scholarship
0: Hope Scholarship, which is basically a uh, scholarship that's been around now three, four years that goes to victims of bullying and other students who um, have reason to be concerned about their physical safety, uh, victims of sexual harassment, of assault um, and whatnot. And so that, that, um, that has no means test of any kind because anyone of any income is susceptible to being bullied. Um, so we have that in place. We had, as I mentioned, this new uh, voucher uh, that was adopted after DeSantis won. And then, and then we adopted the ESA, the Gardner Scholarship, for special needs kids about eight years or so ago. So we now have technically five full-time scholarships. There's actually a sixth partial uh, scholarship that is available to students who are behind grade level in reading. Right. Uh, early elementary. Oh, situation. tell me
1: about that one. I love that
0: one. Yeah. So it basically provides um, $500. That's, and this is in, in the form of an ESA that parents can use to get supplemental resources to help bring their child up to grade level in reading. Because obviously in those early years, when you're learning to read, it's critical that you, you know, gain some mastery of that so that you're then in a position come fourth grade to begin reading to learn. Um, and so, so how do they spend um, that? So the $500 is available for use to hire tutors or to uh, get involved in other kinds of supplemental programs. A lot of what the parents do um, is during the summer months uh, when we often see a drop-off in, um, you know, students having, um, uh, you know, spending time doing these sorts of things. Um, a lot of times parents will contract with school teachers who are available during the summer months and free sure. to kind of work with their kids and they've already established a relationship. And so it, it, it's, it's a really nice program in that it targets re, re, uh, assistance to uh, students who need it. It gives parents maximum flexibility and it in many ways helps teachers supplement income so that those who don't have anything else going on during the summer and want to earn a little extra money, uh, can and they be- don't want
1: to drive for Uber.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so it seems now that if you're a Florida parent, you have a variety of options available to you. When your child is in school or about to start kindergarten, you have private school programs, you've got charter programs, you've got public school programs, so you have a variety of programs available. What do you think that's, what kind of impact has that had on Florida education?
0: So it's really interesting. Our, our test scores have consistently gone up. Our student outcomes and, and, and achievement has been on a, yeah, on a, on a path upward, uh, going back to the early days of this. Um, mm-hmm. and there have been several studies that have been done, one by a team of researchers from Harvard and Stanford, another from a team of researchers out at the University of Texas. And both have basically shown that over the course of the last 25-plus years, uh, Florida has seen greater growth in student learning, so greater learning gains than 48 other states. So all, Massachusetts is the only state that has, that, has get, that has had greater learning gains than our students. But what's interesting is that during this same time period, Florida has increased per pupil spending less than every other state. Wow. So so basically what that means is we are now delivering far greater bang for buck than any other state. And that's just a, a reflection of the marketplace at work. When you have it's
1: efficiency.
0: Yeah. When when you have people making choices and and kind of making decisions based on what is the value they will derive from this choice versus that choice, you get greater efficiencies in the marketplace and you get what you want. In any market, um, you know, when parents go to buy food or go to buy sure. clothing or go to buy housing, what do they want? They want the highest possible quality at the lowest possible price. And our education system works more in that manner than anyone else's. And that's something that we are, I think, justifiably proud of.
1: Yeah, I always quote that on the nation's report card, the, the exam given by the US Department of Education to every state so that you can compare across states, Florida fourth graders are now fourth and sixth in math and reading, and, and what's unless impressive. I mix those two up. But it's incredible because you guys were like 45th and fourth. Yeah, 46th. no, we were
0: we were a kind of embarrassment um, in many, many ways. And what's really impressive and heartening about what we've seen is that it's not just uh, the affluent kids that are doing well. And, right, and you've done
1: great with low-income
0: you know, kids. The kids. The, 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 the achievement gap between minorities um, and the general population has uh, narrowed considerably. And our um, African American and Latino students regularly outperform their um, um, counterparts in most other states. And they actually outperform the general population of a dozen or more states. And um, so it could, we are Missouri. Yeah, we're seeing some really uh, exciting uh, developments. And I think what's important too to remember in all of this is just that parental satisfaction, which in my mind is perhaps the most important gauge of success, Our, uh, you know, parental satisfaction is very high because people feel like if the, the local district school option isn't right for their kid, they have options. And, yeah. and I think this is one of the things that's really important. Yes, we grade, we grade schools. Yes, we measure how well you know, this school is doing against that school. But, but one of the things that we like to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, general grades that you might give for a particular school for how well it deals with its general population, those are useful, very useful. But at the end of the day, what the parent most cares about is what about my child and right. how well is my child being served? And the truth is that even in the very best schools, you will sometimes have students that for whatever reason, sure. it just isn't a good fit. I mean, Harvard has kids every year, students who transfer out and go elsewhere because they determined that Harvard, however well it might serve most of its students, just isn't the right fit for them. Sure. and we like to point this out because we at no point want to be seen as simply critics of the of the of the public schools and and we don't believe that school choice has to be premised on a belief that some schools are bad or certain public schools are failing or whatever it might be no look even in the best situations there may be students who aren't well-served and we care about every kid and we want every parent to enjoy the freedom to find the perfect fit for their kid to the best of their ability. And that's what school choice provides.
1: I think that's right. And I don't care what parents use to pick on because to choose, I mean, to say lots of times folks will say, well, they're not going to use academic outcomes uh, in their choice. And I said, I don't really care. I picked a pediatrician because uh, I never had to wait An appointment, not because of how successful the doctor was in healing people. What was important to me is I didn't want to wait, and so, and I completely agree. I fully support parents who love their public schools. My kids went through public schools. I went through public schools, traditional public schools. And I'm not saying that charter schools are better or private schools are better. It's whatever you. I want every parent to have at least two options, because this year in particular, when parents in some of the most expensive traditional public schools that spend the most in the most expensive neighborhoods very unhappy parents who wanted their kids to be in person and they were only virtual. And that's the feeling that I only have one option. And I don't like it that a lot of parents face all the time. A lot of low income parents all the time. They know they're sending their children off to unsafe schools and safety is important to them. It's fundamental. And they don't have a choice. I just want every parent to have at least two options. That's all. Okay. Let's get to this rural thing. So Florida is not as different than Missouri as some would believe And do you know what the uptake is on school choice programs in your rural areas? So in
0: the pre-COVID world, many of our rural communities in terms of schooling options probably don't look that different from a lot of places in Missouri, which is to say that um, anytime that you're talking about doing school in the traditional way, which is to say everyone gathers in a brick and mortar school for X number of hours every day of the week. And that school basically provides everything from A to Z that one would normally associate with a public school. Okay, If, that, if that's your kind of um, way of thinking about education, then there's a big hurdle that rural areas face if they want to even have options other than the district school. And that is a critical mass problem, which is... In order to start a Catholic school or a private school of some other kind or a charter school or whatever it might be, you have to have a critical mass of parents that are interested in that option that would be willing to help get such an enterprise off the ground. And so for that reason, though, we do have, you know, uh, uh, private schools and Christian schools and Catholic schools and whatnot in areas that aren't densely populated. Rural charter schools? and, And charter schools. Most of the um, areas that have the widest options are as you might expect in urban areas uh, where you don't have those kind of critical mass challenges. So I've said at the outset, this is what existed pre-COVID. What COVID has done is I think extremely important in two different ways. Uh, one is from the standpoint of work, COVID has taught companies that remote work is now possible in ways that they may have never imagined. And that it's not just possible, it's often desirable, not just for the employee, but for many employers who are saying, hey, we can save ourselves a lot of money on office space and other overhead costs if we rely increasingly on remote work. And so as a result, a number of companies have already announced that they plan to, you know, uh, continue remote work after the pandemic is over. McKinsey and the Bureau of Labor Statistics have both made projections about what they think will happen in the post-COVID world. McKinsey is predicting that as much that there will be a four to five-fold increase in remote work pre from pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. Wow. That as many as 25% of all jobs will then or will, will in the post-COVID world be done uh, remotely. So what that now means is that for a lot of rural areas that have seen manufacturing go away, have seen their areas um, go into decline, there's now an opportunity for them to attract newcomers to their locations, to their small towns, to their rural areas, because people no longer have to be tethered to a, a downtown location, they can now live remotely just as they work remotely. The second thing that has happened with the pandemic that that kind of goes hand in glove with this development on the part of work is that in response to the pandemic, many parents have begun experimenting much more um, uh, aggressively with all sorts of what I like to call DIY education options. It's homeschooling, it's hybrid schooling, it's pandemic pods or learning pods, it's micro schools, but basically the key thing about all of these different options is they tend to be parent-led or parent-driven, though they're not all that way, Um, and they tend to be small, and so they don't require the kind of critical mass that is necessary to start uh, an A to Z school. You can now form kind of one-room schoolhouse type schools with much smaller student populations. And so here again, for people in rural areas that are thinking about this, not simply in the way that we traditionally think about education, which is what will the test scores be like? How will our students perform? Can we get them the kind of courses they need? All of those are important considerations. But what we want to encourage rural leaders to do is to think about school choice as an economic development issue. It's a way for you to attract very desirable people to your community to come and take up residence there, strong families with often very talented students or children who can help revitalize your local economy at relatively little expense to the local, you know, you're, you're not having to build new schools and expend all kinds of money on infrastructure. And if you have policies like we have in Florida, right. you can get those kids to play for the local uh, football team on Friday night and help, you know, win state championships. Yeah. So everybody wins from this sort of proposition. And one of the things that McKinsey is saying that we think is really important here is that the geography of work is going to change in the post-COVID world, that people are going to empty out of urban core areas, move to outer suburbs, to yeah. small cities, Seeing it already. Yep. small towns. And this is a real opportunity for rural leaders to say, let's embrace this. And one of the things that we're going to need to do to embrace this is to have ESA policies or other sorts of policies that facilitate... Um, DIY education that gives sure. parents the freedom to put together the kind of schooling that they need on a small scale for their children so that they will have incentive to come and um, live here where it's often. So, I mean, more Florida's affordable. already
1: got a dozen programs. You guys must be looking pretty good. For post-COVID,
0: Well, I mean, this is the argument that we're making to at the James Madison Institute to our legislators is to think of this in economic development terms. There's a pent up demand for school yep. choice around the country. There are many people in other states who aren't who want the kind of options that we have in Florida. We have an opportunity now to lure them here. We ought to seize it. These are very desirable sorts of uh, families to attract. Um, they will be net assets to our economy. And we ought to be uh, putting out the welcome mat and encouraging folks to come. And I think a state like Missouri or, you know, any number of other places ought to truthfully be, be doing the same thing. And, you know, We're I, not. I, I <laughs> when I talk with people in other states, I tell them, look, I really want you for the sake of your, you know, local population, your state population, I really want you to do the right thing because they're going to invariably be any number of people who won't be able to move and who ought to be better served by their um, right. leaders. But if they can't, and if the state leaders choose not to serve them, yeah, we'll be happy to take them. Send them <laughs> off to Florida. We'd enjoy having You don't
1: have income tax,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, no, we, we've got sunshine. We've got no income tax. We've got plenty of reasons why you might want to live here anyway. And guess what? We'll tax. let you do school the way you want to do school Uh, which you may not be able to do back in your um, state.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very smart thing because, you know, people keep asking me, is this the new normal? What's the new normal? And I'm getting tired of that term. But I do think that some of the some of the changes we've seen are going to be permanent. And I think that's one, which is that parents are like, I don't have to do this 730 to 330, get on the bus, get off the bus thing you know, we don't have to do that. And parents are traveling with their kids and taking school with them. Or if there's snow on the ground, they're like, no, do you can just stay home today and do school. And all that flexibility, I think, is something that is not going to go away. I don't think people want fewer choices rather than more. So they've had a little taste of um, having some options this year. And I don't think I, I think that there are many people in Missouri who fully expect that next August 15th or September 1st, we're just going to go back to 2018 or 2019. And that's, no one's, everything's going to just return to the way it was. And I don't believe that's true. I
0: I don't either. And it, I mean, part of what has convinced me is that some pollsters who've been looking at, at kind of parent attitudes over time are saying, wow, we're seeing sentiments like we've never seen before. There is a Uh, A level of frustration that parents have with what has gone on and and a level of excitement about some of these new innovations. And look, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that everything is going to change overnight and that everyone is enthusiastic about, you know, hybrid schooling and micro schools and all of these other innovations. But what I will say is this. The people who are the most animated, the people who have been the most frustrated by what has happened and the people who have been the most excited about some of these innovations tend to be the kind of parents that you want to keep in your state or attract to come live in your state rather than the people that you'd be happy to see go because they tend to be the parents who formerly were PTA presidents and grade mothers and people that were highly involved in their schools that care an awful lot about education and who are willing to make some of the sacrifices that are necessary in order to get a better um, uh, option for their kid. And so if those folks decide, even if it's only say 10% of the population, if they all decide to leave Missouri and to go elsewhere, your state will suffer the consequences and places like Florida that are welcoming of such families will reap the benefits. And so we would yeah. encourage you to you know, do the right thing by those families and do your best to serve them in ways that I think a largely rural state like yours can now compete much more um, easily than it, than it formerly could with uh, big city sorts of places that had critical mass and could offer options that just weren't possible for a lot of places in Missouri.
1: Yeah, we have a, I mean, like so many states, we have a power structure. So we don't have any school choice in Missouri. We have uh, charter schools in St. Louis and Kansas City only. And they're only because those are the two districts that were unaccredited at one time. Out of 520 districts, 514 are fully accredited. So we have this kind of scam accountability system where everyone gets an a because because it triggers charter schools and there, there's like this desire to not let charter schools spread outside St. Louis and Kansas City, folks are like, we don't want St. Louis and Kansas City's problems here. I'm like, (laughs) you wouldn't get the problems, you would get a solution, and only if you want or need it, like nothing's going to be imposed upon you. But there's this big fear that there would be some, you know, dismantling of the public school system in these rural communities that love their schools, and they love being the screaming eagles or the falcons, and that somehow we want to dismantle that, which is of course not true. And so there's a power structure of school board association, superintendent association and teachers unions that aren't as strong here as other places, but they have a lot of money for lobbyists and they show up to committee hearings and they make sure that nothing changes in their community, that mm. they're, they're going to get a lot more money, apparently as of last in the last few days, they're going to get a ton more money to spend but uh, they don't want any change. They want to be able to continue to run the show and they see any type of change as a threat rather than as an opportunity. Like I think Florida has seen all of these as opportunities and now you've got the results. You're 20 years ahead of us or 25 and now you get to see the results and it's very frustrating that people don't see this as an opportunity. Like this is a selling point for Missouri. it's,
0: It's a huge opportunity and what's fascinating is that it's an opportunity not just to address problems that we all see in the education space, but it actually provides an opportunity to address problems that um, that that are that are indirectly affected. And let me give you one that I think is just fascinating. Um, we're getting ready to publish a report that has uh, um, uh, some research that's been collected by a real estate professor of all things, who shows that when you adopt universal school choice scholarships, um, you end up. Um, improving less affluent neighborhoods, Um, often troubled areas that are economically disadvantaged that everyone wants to revitalize. And the reason this happens is that currently most middle-income families, when they go to buy houses, they care about location, location, location. And why do they care about location, location, location? Because really what they care about is education, education, education. They want a district where their kids are going to have schools that are uh, high-performing. Well, when you provide school choice, parents no longer have to go shopping only in those top neighborhoods to find housing. They can, if they wish, choose to live in more affordable areas. And by the way, when they do so, you get greater economic diversification and it ends up helping to lift all boats and people in troubled neighborhoods now find themselves with better neighbors They find it easier to then attract grocery stores and banks to their areas. And suddenly you end up having um, a much healthier composition of neighborhoods, not just better schools. So one of the things that we're trying to tell our uh, legislature is, hey, we need to um, target some of our choice and give priority to those middle income families that are interested in living in more affordable areas so that we can see some of these improvements in the economic life of and and quality of life in those areas. And so again this is not the primary purpose obviously of school choice is not neighborhood transformation but one of the side That's a great benefits, outcome. Yeah, one of the side benefits is that if you if you provide these uh, you know uh, you, to, to to everyone not just to the poor, everyone, but you provide them to everyone. A lot of middle-income families will now choose to live um, among the poor or uh, among folks who are less affluent and you'll end up getting much better um, neighborhood uh, outcomes as a result.
1: Yeah, I floated this idea. So St. Louis County has dozens of school districts in one County, dozens, as opposed to Florida has what, 67 school districts. It's right. just your counties. We have 520. So in one county we have dozens and they just kept getting smaller and smaller over time as people carved out the people they didn't want in their school district, they made it smaller. So we've got these very small school districts and you know people are really rigid about the lines around these school districts. And then they say, well, I bought a house in there and I'm paying the property taxes and my kid should be able to get to go to those schools and nobody else gets to go to those schools. And I'm like, what if we just blew it open and had it be one district and you can go anywhere You know you didn't have like the same the price differential between the exact same house in this city is insane like is insane like the price differential so if you you know live in a anyway it's a it's huge it's huge here and if we busted it open then that would not be the case and i wouldn't be able to afford my house but that would not be the case so we would see revitalization that we need so badly st louis has such deep set problems and we're trying to figure out what to do about the racism and the crime here. And that would be one way to not force people. I mean, I talk about my, my daughter who lives in Denver and she and her husband can stay right in their apartment if they have a child who starts kindergarten, because they're going to go in and put their top five into a computer. And there's an algorithm that's going to tell them what school out of their top five, but they get to go to their neighborhood school if they choose. And lots of places are doing that. And this disconnecting of your address from where your child has to be educated I think is the wh- whoever does that soonest is going to um, really reap the benefit of it whatever city or state does that soonest is that's who's gonna really um,
0: yeah I I, I, mean, I, I don't
1: want to say win but you know what I'm saying it's like whoever does it last we're going right. to be the ones who really are at the bottom
0: right because one of the things that you want to happen, if you can, is to be attracting newcomers at the same time that you have some of this. I mean, what typically happens, according to this real estate professor, is that people who basically bought starter homes in transitional neighborhoods choose to remain in them because they say, hey, I don't want to just uproot and start all over somewhere else. I might need a bigger house, but I'll just buy one in this area because I, you know, find it convenient to my work and want to remain here now that my kids are school-aged. So, so you won't really have that many people necessarily moving in. But if you have some movement about, because people can now afford to live in um, areas that they previously would not have considered, it helps. I mean, every, it, the rising tide lifts all boats when you have newcomers streaming in and, and putting upward pressure on property values in the areas that have traditionally done well. yeah. And so the thing that you don't want to be is, like you say, one of the last um, uh, guys at the dance looking for someone to dance with, because <laughs> as as others go away, you're going to be left with fewer people chasing um, fewer options, and it's yep. going to be harder to compete. So yeah, I, I, I always totally say we moves. need
1: to attract young families. And what happens here is young families or parents of kids between the ages of zero and four are move they have to move. Like once your kid gets to be two or three, you're like, okay, now we've got to find our, our actual house. And uh, that's a, that's a shame. I just yeah. think it's a shame, but um, yeah. yeah, I don't want yeah. to take up too much more of your time. This has been fascinating. I love that you guys are doing work in rural education, rural school choice. I know you've got a report coming out soon on that, but, um, and so many other things, and I'm going to keep talking about Florida and just how it's going to be because you guys really are a good contrast for us because you, as you've gone up from 45th or whatever to fourth and sixth, we've gone down from 15th and 20th to like in the mid-30s. And uh, states are going to keep passing us by if we don't get this figured out.
0: Yeah, and we want to um, we want to help, you know, in other states learn from things that we've figured out, things that we've yeah. um, succeeded in. Um, we want to share also, hey, you know, this didn't actually work out quite the way we anticipated and learn from our mistakes as well. Sure. But I tell you more than anything, what we want is people to, to leapfrog us, to yeah. put pressure on right. us to continue to innovate and to continue to, to advance the ball. Because even though we've made a lot of progress, there's still lots of room for growth, lots yeah. of room for improvement in, um, in our situation. And, and the best thing that can happen for us is for states like yours and others to kind of get in the game and, and put pressure on our legislators to, um, you know, try something new that we haven't tried that needs to needs to uh, be tried.
1: That's excellent. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.